0: Before we get started with today's show, let me tell you about another great ESPN podcast, the Dominique Foxworth Show. ESPN and Anscape contributor Dominique Foxworth's podcast is every Tuesday and Thursday, bringing his unique perspectives on football, the personality surrounding it, and just about anything else he finds interesting or thinks you might. So check out the Dominique Foxworth Show. Listen where you are listening to this podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Right Time. My name is Bomani Jones. Thanks for listening wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us, review us, give us five stars. You only give us four stars. I'm inclined to believe you are a hater. Coming up on this episode of The Right Time, we got a lot to talk about from NFL to NBA, but let's get started with this part of the playoffs. All right, so... Got my man Parker here with us. Parker is uh, from Miami. Like, you a Heat fan? And hey, We haven't really talked about this. Oh, I'm a huge Heat fan. Heat culture all the way, baby. All right. You a Panthers fan, too? I hear the Panthers did something really important over the weekend. I don't watch that. Okay. I'm just saying, they did just pull off one of the great upsets in the history of their little sport. And for those of you who don't know, the Panthers, they have an NHL team, a nearish Miami. You know what I'm saying? They beat the Boston Bruins, who were really good. I just gave you everything I know. Anyway, the Heat beat the Bucs in five. Five, I tell you. Five. That was pretty mind-blowing. Came up, got this victory in the Madison Square Garden. And man, I don't think I'm going to be able to make these early games, but I'm jealous. It is cracking in there. Like, I get it from the people who think that everybody just cares too much about these large markets. But I'm gonna say this right now. When they was over there in Sacramento hitting that pipe, I have to say, just watching games in that arena was incredible. Like if you wanna go back to like what was really lost for the NBA, when you go back to the bubble and even the year after when you still had some limited capacities in some of those buildings, it's so much better watching a game in arenas where people care. Like where they're really, really into it. And I'm telling you, they may be louder in other places. Nobody cares more than Madison Square Garden. I told you, I went to a game uh, with Roy Wood. We went a uh, early season game against the Hornets, and Roy was like, "This is what it's like to watch a game with twenty thousand people who got money on it. They care so much. They got my man Jimmy in there balling. Though Jimmy, Jimmy got that 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 he fell on his booty, it hurt his back, but somehow kept going through that. Then Jimmy had the crazy ankle injury." In the course of this game, see, Jimmy, Jimmy can't go back, right? Like Jimmy has said this explicitly. We have discussed this. Jimmy can't go back, and I understand. I left the greater Houston area in 1997. That is now 26 years ago. I imagine a lot of things have changed in many ways, and in fact, I know for fact that a lot of things have changed in many ways okay but i'm telling you right now there is no way that jimmy can take his black ass back to tom ball texas okay and i know that those of you who don't really understand what i'm talking about those of y'all from houston get what i'm talking about and you thinking when i say this oh tom ball must be really hood oh no 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 tom ball why jimmy listen to all that country music you understand what i'm saying like somebody online the other day told me they said that Jimmy was like every black person that they had met from Tom Ball. And I was like, yo, Jimmy's like every black person that I had met from Tom Ball. Because Jimmy is every black person that I have ever met from Tom Ball. And understand, I went to a high school where we used to play against Tom Ball. Like, like Tom Ball, like I'm not talking black people from Houston, especially from the South Side, talk about Tom Ball like a theory. Like, Tom Ball is anything that is north that they think got white people in it. It is Tom Ball. It is far off. It is the country. It is all of those things. I remember my freshman year in high school. Our basketball team got into a fight with Tom Ball on the floor. And let's just say, our team did not look like their team. To a man, to a man, our team had a dude on it whose name was Sugar Ray. On his birth certificate, Tom Ball didn't have no Sugar rays. Sugar rays was cold, too, just to be clear. Tom Ball didn't have no Sugar Rays on eighteen. So anytime I keep hearing about Jimmy Butler beer from Tom Ball, Texas, I'm like, damn, I don't really know necessarily how that happened. But I know this. Jimmy can't go back. You know what I mean? Jimmy can't go back. And he been playing like he can't go back. Like, I don't think we've had time to talk about this on the podcast. I had some people in my mentions like, oh, you don't want to talk about Jimmy? Yeah, because we all know how much I don't like Jimmy Butler. (laughs) Whatever. Nah, that first round is one of the best first rounds that we have ever seen from any player. That 56 he put up is one of the best games that we have ever seen from anybody, period. Like, there's no way around it. I've been saying for a while now, Jimmy Butler is a Hall of Famer. And I know that sounds like a crazy thought to a lot of people, but the big reason why I think that sounds so crazy, it's just a matter of where you started from. And you never started with the idea that he could be that guy. Like I think that we have, through time, generally looked at Jimmy Butler similarly to the way that we look at somebody like Chris Middleton an all-star caliber player where if you stay for the right, stay with the right team for the right amount of time, they retire your jersey, you know, that sort of thing. But nobody's thinking about like Chris Middleton in the upper echelon star category. I don't say superstar because I'm real reluctant to throw that word around, but that upper echelon level of star Chris Middleton, dude who went to the D-League or G-League, whichever it was when he was in it, right? You don't think of him in that way. And I think that Butler, once he got to like that Middleton level, we thought about that as just being the guy that he would be without really noticing everything that happened after this. Like, you think about this for a second. The Minnesota Temple Wolves chose like the Carl Towns era over keeping Jimmy Butler. The Sixers chose Tobias Harris and Ben Simmons over keeping Jimmy Butler. All right? Like, I mean, granted, those aren't two particularly well-run teams, but they are teams that looked at him and looked around him and were like, yeah, now nah, we think we good on this. For whatever reason, they made that call. The end result is a Hall of Famer. And again, as crazy as it sounds to many of you, the idea of him being a Hall of Famer. This is what I'll throw out at you. And I've checked this. You'll have a really hard time finding a guy who has been the best player on a team that went to the NBA Finals who is not in the Hall of Fame. Like, off the top of my head, I can only name one. And it's going to sound crazy to you, but it's Jalen Rose, The 2000 Pacers. Reggie Miller is in the Hall of Fame, but at that point in time, I would say that Jalen Rose was the best player that they had on the team. Everybody else is in the Hall of Fame. You can try, you think about it, go up and down that list. Everybody else is in the Hall of Fame. Every single one. And the thing with Jimmy, like that crazy tip in against the Bucks, like all these things. The thing about Jimmy that, for me, makes it interesting to watch is that this is not about juking the numbers. You know, like, I imagine we'll get at some point in this podcast talk about Denver and Phoenix, but John Hollinger wrote a very good piece for The Athletic where he's like, the problem that the Suns have is they don't take enough threes. And so they wind up doing a lot of trading three for two. They're deadly in the mid-range, but they don't really have I mean, Kevin Durant can shoot those threes, obviously, but that's not really what the offense is. Devin Booker can, but Devin Booker's not Klay Thompson. You know what I mean? Like, it's not, like, they don't have, like, marksmen. those dudes. Even, like, a Steve Kerr type of player. They don't have those dudes on the squad. Jimmy's not getting this done in that way. This is, I'm going to go make this happen. It's a lot of just sheer force of will that's going on here with Jimmy. Because Jimmy ain't going back. Like, everything about his game is, dog, I ain't going back. And I imagine, it's got to be kind of insufferable to deal with. I'll be the first to tell you. Like, I don't know if I'd feel like putting up with that shit all the time. I mean, Jimmy, it's good that Jimmy got to the Heat, because the Heat are just like that. Like, that's what everybody does up top. So it ain't necessarily so particular to Jimmy Butler. But Jimmy over there, leading on Carl. Carl, eh, poor Carl Tiles. Like, I, I, I absolutely imagine that he was miserable playing with Jimmy. But not nearly as miserable as Jimmy was playing with Carl. Uh, Parker, did you see where Jeff Teague went on podcast and finally told that full story about when Jimmy went out there with the, the third string and ate him up that day and then did the interview with Rachel Nichols?
1: That was one of the greatest storytellings I've ever
0: seen. <laughs> Just shout out to Jeff Teague for giving <laughs> my, us that. My favorite part was that Jeff Teague said, and who we going to get? the bad news bears (laughs) like when he said and for those who haven't heard it you know the story that when jimmy was trying to get traded in minnesota he showed up one day for practice took the third team beat the first team then rolled out and did the interview with rachel Nichols. the best part about that for me of obviously and Jimmy decided he was going to guard Carl Towns. And he guarded him and just stayed taking the ball from him and throwing it to other people. And the way Jeff T told the story is that the Bad News Bears, who he was like, no disrespect, but none of them were going to make the team. The Bad News Bears was out there feeling empowered. And he said that Darius uh, Johnson Odom did a windmill on a breakaway. Like, that's how bad they were tossing them boys up. Tossing them up. Sauced him up. And all for two reasons. A, they would not pay him. And B, Jimmy really doesn't like Carl Anthony Towns. He just decided that he was going to just do it to him. Like, that was all. And my understanding is, he said even more. Like, like, like Teague left off some of the better parts. of the, In fact, Parker played the music.
1: Thank you for your patience. A representative from the right time will be with you shortly. Your current hold time is 15 seconds.
0: But I bring this up about jimmy not going back for this reason it was a nice little segue into the thing with Giannis after that game uh where Giannis wound up going on a soliloquy about failure and the notions and idea of failure and um uh, I think it's Eric Nem. I don't know how to pronounce his N-E-H-M. Forgive me, I've never heard his name said out loud, but I keep up with his work. He's a good, good writer, um, covers the Bucs for the Athletic. He's covered Giannis for years. And so after Giannis missed all them free throws in game five and after the Bucs got bounced, he asked Giannis if, you know, the season was a failure. And it almost fried Giannis's brain. And he, you know, understandably defensive in a moment like that, pushed back and then went with the idea that there is no failure and gave his whole outlook about just basically their steps along the way this is all a process but there is no failure which of course started a nice like internet kerfuffle of sorts among people for a couple of reasons one of them is that you dorks insist upon people just like self-flagellating in front of you that's one but two I actually think that there's like an existential question about what the idea of failure is. And I think that that is something that lands with people and kind of gets them talking. But that's generally. Specifically, we kind of approach it in what I would term a somewhat binary fashion when it comes to talking about athletes, because we love to say people failed, right? Like, that's the biggest thing about people. And... The idea or notion of failure at levels like the NBA, to me, is tricky to discuss. It's kind of very similar to the line of work that I'm in when you start talking about ideas of failure, because getting on is such a big deal. Like, simply getting to where you are in these spaces is such a big deal that when you hear some little poo-butt who ain't never done nothing talk about the idea of you failing, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Like it just doesn't, it just doesn't add up. Like I talk about uh when I first got um high noon, it's something I remember my man Rod told me and it stuck with me. And he was like, hey man, I'd be listening to these comedy podcasts and I talk to these people, and what I realize is getting a show is a win. Right? Now, a show can subsequently be a failure after that, but the idea of what does or doesn't make it a failure is a little different depending upon who you're talking to, what the circumstances are, and everything else, right? But there's, there were like two interesting levels on it from here from Giannis that I could appreciate. One of them, they did fail. Like there's kind of sort of no way around that. You were a one seed and you didn't just lose in the first round. You lost in five. In all the games that Giannis played, they lost. The one game they won was the game that he wasn't in. And as much as he was hurt, he didn't play badly in game five. He just couldn't make any free throw. Like, that was the way that I ultimately looked at that. It didn't make any free throws. And the dude on the other team decided, we go win this even if Lowry files out, even if Love files out, even if Bam files out. We still go win this because I can't go back. Right? But I tried to make a point on Twitter that I think I kind of lost because I messed up in the phrasing where I was just saying that, I felt like people were demanding that Giannis come out there and say that he feels like a failure. And they're like, no, we're not saying that he should say he should feel like a failure, just that he should say that his team failed. And I would argue that for athletes in this capacity, it's very difficult to separate those two ideas, right? But the point that I was trying to make that I think got lost was, you're not gonna ever make that dude who used to sell fake watches on the street That he has failed because he's lost a series in the first round in the NBA. Like, you're not going to make him look at it like that. Because if he looked at it like that, he'd have never got halfway close to where he is right now. He is not going to be the person that you're going to be able to make feel like that or that you're going to get to say that out loud. That's just not it, right? For different reasons, I'm wired the same way. Like I did High Noon, High Noon got canceled. You ain't never gonna look at me and tell me that somehow it failed because it got canceled. I know enough about how the game works and how different things go. It wasn't a success, but the world isn't really that binary right? Success versus failure. There's no space in between. It's not really how it works. With sports, we don't even really think that's how it works in sports. But we do think that losing in five games is the one seed to an eight seed. That, by the way, is not your everyday eight seed. But still, the one seed losing to the eight seed, by our metrics, that is failure, right? By any way that we ever look at things, that is failure. And I feel very confident that Mike Bootenhoser is going to feel like a failure when they fire him. Right? Like, you're going to have a hard time explaining that y'all didn't fail if the coach gets fired. Fair point. But that dude ain't going to be the one to be like that. Like, you just got to get that. Some people come from different places and different spaces, and he is never going to be able to look at it in that same way. It ain't like he getting up. It was up there talking about, I mean, if it had been a best of nine, I think we would have come out there with the victory. You know what I mean? Like, like I didn't feel like it was coming with excuses. I didn't feel like the man was trying to dodge the fact that he obviously was feeling the pain of it. But he cannot look at these individual, discrete moments as failures. He can't. He views them as part of the process. Part of getting, ultimately, to where you want to go. Because, dog, You want to talk about somebody that's won the game of life. It's that dude. And so you're not going to be able to get him as a nuanced person with a particular lived experience to look at this through the binary lens that you look at things because what we're talking about ain't about you. You know? Now, I want to tack something small on to the back of that that is not really related, but still want to tack this on having a discussion on the internets with you guys about um only one player from an hbcu being drafted in the nfl i understand why that jumps out at people but i don't think that's the first time that's happened he didn't really care before somebody said something about it di made a quote about it like as the day was going on my man fred hit me up it was like get ready for the think peace olympics because it looked like no hbcu players are going to be drafted one hbcu player Got drafted. Okay. Deion Sanders said the NFL should be ashamed that only one HBCU player got drafted. I need you to tell me why the NFL should be ashamed about this. Because my question is, how good are the players? Right, that's, that's that's simply it. The issue that black colleges have had for the longest is the ability to get players. Now, there was this guy named Deion Sanders who got there. And if it stayed at Jackson, it had been more than one HBCU player who got drafted. But he took a bunch of them with him to Colorado now, didn't he? Now, who should be ashamed of to themselves, right? By that metric. But the thing is, and what I, I feel like this is one of those, like when Harry Styles wins the Grammy over Beyonce and everybody acts like it's a travesty, but you ain't never listened to the Harry Styles record to know. You know, it sounds bad. It looks bad, but we don't identify what the situation is or how we got to this point. But what got me about that was people cared way too much about the idea of being drafted. Okay, so there's a dude, um, his name is Isaiah Land. He's a defensive lineman, edge rusher of Florida A&M. In his pro day stuff or whatever, he listed at 236 pounds. and the wiki, they had him listed at 215 pounds. He was division or FCS player of the year in 2021. Uh, I don't believe he got drafted. But he signed with the Cowboys. Because it's better to be undrafted than be a sixth or seventh round pick. If you're undrafted, A, you're probably going to get a bigger signing bonus. And B, you get to pick where you go. Right? Teams are on the phone always blowing up these guys they look at as like undrafted free agents, guys they want to get, guys they want to look at. Like you got a chance there if you're undrafted. But what comes with the draft is the honor or the idea of being drafted right? It's just pomp and circumstance, but it ain't really effectively anything else. It's not, right? All you can really ask for is a chance to get on. What that chance is in particular, it doesn't matter that much. Because let me tell you about these dudes. Once they get on, bro, they can't go back. Because one thing about HBCU sports, for better or worse, it's a lot of can't go back action that's going on here. So rather for me, rather than worried about how many of the dudes get drafted, because that to me is a question about raw talent coming in, NFL has demonstrated to me, they'll go look for dudes anywhere. Like you're just not going to be able to convince me that this is where they get it wrong. I think they look at HBCUs less than they used to because they had less to look at than they used to when they went to HBCUs. But what we need to do right now is clap our hands for everybody that got on. No matter how they got into a camp, clap your hands that they got into a camp. And watch that can't go back, come out, and watch them do the best they can and root for from there, right? But sitting around getting all caught up in um, the idea that they didn't get drafted, it ain't about getting drafted, it's about getting on. And now they got the chance to get on. But we we wasn't even identifying, to me, what the problem was, people not identifying what the problem was. Just seeing this thing, internet outrage machine goes, boom, there we are. I'm rooting for all them cats and I wish them the best. But don't be so caught up in whether or not they got drafted. As Giannis said, it's a process, right? These dudes didn't fail because they didn't get drafted. The schools didn't fail because they didn't get drafted. The process continues, right? Now, if you had a dude like Shaquille Leonard, formerly Darius Leonard, and he ain't get drafted, now we talk about something different. But guess what? When it was a Darius Leonard over there, he went to the combine and he went in the second round. So I ask you to keep that part in mind. It is all a process. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training. Just in time for summer and warmer days. I've been in the gym a little bit trying to get my fitness in check so I can break these skinny allegations I keep getting.
1: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDIC.
0: Guys, something interesting is going on in the Western Conference. Thus far, who's looked better than Denver? Like, Parker, am I
1: tripping here? No, not really. You can't make an argument for anyone else, I don't think. Everyone else has had too many moments where they've looked weak, I would say.
0: Yeah, and I think the thing for me with Denver, and it was a game they lost, but it was when they was losing by double digits late against Minnesota, and they had a, all right, boys, let's go. Just possession after possession where they decided they really gonna really were not gonna lose that game. Jokic missed the first of those two free throws at the end. That would have put them on top, and so it went to overtime, and they ultimately lost. But they looked like, a championship contender. Like they look like a team that believed they could win a championship. Because I think I talked about it on here on here before. The Nuggets have not been a legitimate championship contender in my life. I don't think they've ever been a legitimate NBA championship contender. They've never been to the NBA finals. I can name a couple of times that they've been to the conference finals. I think I can name three. 2020, 09, and then I feel like one of those years in the 80s. It might've even been two but they got to the conference finals. That's it. Look, man, they walked in that game against Phoenix and destroyed them, right? It didn't feel fluky. It didn't feel like, oh, we just happened to be making shots today or anything else. No, they just went out there and beat them. Now, Phoenix couldn't make threes. That was a big part of it, but they just, they looked like the better team. They got Jokic out there just banging Aiton in the chest. Like, David to do something about it. Did you see that play where they were going up for rebounds? Like, it was, it was kind of that game of, 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 of just, just tipping the ball around there. And Aiton just watched from the baseline away from the play? Like, oh, that's why they don't seem to like you. Got it. But they look like that squad. Like, for them to win that game in that way when, I mean... It's not like Kevin Durant didn't show up. It's not like Devin Booker didn't show up. Those dudes played and played well. Kevin Durant scored 29 points on 19 shots and had 14 rebounds. He did turn the ball over too much, but 29 and 14, and they were a minus 20 in the minutes that he was on the floor. Jokic didn't play that great, But Jamal Murray was like, I have flames coming from my keister. I am so hot. Like, we'll see what game two looks like. I guess, obviously, in a series like that, game three in Phoenix is going to be the one that tells us the story the best. But they've looked better than anybody else has looked in the playoffs. Period. And people need to get comfortable with that. Parker, are you trying to throw the Miami Heat into this? Oh, absolutely. They beat they beat Giannis <laughs> on the
1: in five games. Like Fair, fair, and fair. Walk the Knicks off the court with four players on the team. Jimmy with fair. Jimmy hobbled in the corners.
0: <laughs> fair, fair. I guess the thing for me on that is why I said that about Denver was I felt like so much of the Heat was so much Jimmy. You know, so like I looked at that as like a one man band situation, but like top to bottom. Like what the Heat did it didn't make me say, and now they can win the East. Not that they can't, but it didn't, it didn't move me in the way that some of what I've seen from Denver um has done it. With Phoenix, I'm just hoping they get that thing together quick. Cause look, man, that's a, that's a bunch of dudes that ain't really played together. And I'm telling you, man, this Aiden thing, did you see where Aiden threw the ball five feet over Chris Paul's head and told him to catch it? Yeah, he's having a rough playoffs. Yeah, no, they whole situation, man, ain't, ain't a lot of love circulating amongst themselves on that team. Um, but it's cool to see Denver do this. And I want to say this, by the way, for all you, uh, pipe hitters in Sacramento, I really enjoyed watching them play. Like in the end, it just kind of came down to this other team had champs on it and this team did not. Right. Like that to me is really what it came to. And at the end they couldn't get it done. And then I noticed this, the bonus had a fractured thumb and that was a big part of what was going on. But there's also just kind of a problem with his game. And I felt like he requires, and his stats seem to indicate this, you got to take some harder shots. Like most people, you want to take easier shots, but he shoots 62% from the floor or something like that because he ain't taking nothing he think he might miss. And that's not going to work because you can't put that much weight on your little guard. Your little guard who had a broken finger and played really, really well considering everything, but you still as a team can't put that much weight on a little guard. But it was great to have Sacramento. It was great to have that arena back into things, right? Like this is going to be a team that people are going to want to watch and give us more teams that we find interesting. Cool. This, it work? That being said, Adam Silver still gave himself that champagne bath because he got LeBron and Steph. Yeah. Yeah. He got it. And he got it in a way that's different than those NBA finals in the sense that this could go either way. Like, the Warriors were favorites in all of those finals. You know, like, the 2016 win for LeBron, the reason we don't really talk that much about it being Steph 3, LeBron 1, is because that 1 was so overwhelming and shocking. Right? But now we got it. And these aren't super teams, right? These are both very, very, very flawed teams. The difference is, this version of Steph Curry is up there with any version of Steph Curry that we have seen. This is not that version of LeBron James. But there is an Anthony Davis in this, and there was no player really of that stature that was the number two guy for, I guess he's not even the number two guy, I guess, for the Lakers. He's really the number one guy. But this, I mean, we got it, that play-in game two years ago where we got this, that was like some for real stuff. Like those were real stakes. That really felt like something. And we got it. But I didn't come out of that Sacramento series feeling good about Golden State. I didn't come out of that Memphis series feeling good about the Lakers. Like, I felt good for the Lakers in the sense that this is the rare time for Lakers fans where they have something that they can enjoy without championship expectations. Like, you've just never really gotten to live like that. I'm not being patronizing or insulting when I say that. They've been so good so often and so much a championship threat. It is very rare that they get a team that I feel like they can just enjoy and take whatever they get from it. And that's what they have here because of the way the year started and the way the year, um, you know, evolved. But, man, the West, we got great matchups over there just for stuff to see. We bring this back to the East. Miami, New York is a great matchup, right? Like, it's possible that they are the two worst teams in the East that are still remaining, but they play in each other. Parker, don't do that. Why are you looking like that? I Listen, you can doubt the Heat culture all you want, but the Heat I, have... I not I, I, I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it. All I'm saying is this. That's the five and the eight, and the other side is the two and the three. I'm just saying, the Heat have beaten every team in the Eastern Conference multiple times. Okay, I got you. I mean, all 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 of that's fair. But coming into these playoffs, Sixers and Celtics were viewed as legitimate championship contenders. Uh, The Knicks and the Heat were not. We spent all year with the Heat like, well, when's it going to come around? We know it should be better than this. When's it going to come around? And it never did until it kind of did right right like they've shot better than they have all year long like all of these things have happened but either way it's a great matchup it's a matchup of history you're too young to remember pj brown uh flipping charlie ward upside down and all of that stuff larry johnson and alonzo morning slugging it out at madison square garden um the 99 year where the Heat were the one seed and lost in the first round uh to the Knicks with the boing 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 boing, bounce around shot that year that the Knicks won a playoff game against the Heat and they dropped balloons from the Raptors and I believe the year was 2012 yeah 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 it was a party city promotion that wound up going over very badly anyway I just say all that's to say we got some really good NBA playoffs, and it's good in the way that the league wants it. Yes, they got markets, but they also got you Denver, right? Sprinkle a little variety in there. The East, look, Miami, New York, Boston, and Philadelphia, they really couldn't have asked for much more on this, right? If they can't get no TV numbers on this, oh, baby, they got a big problem. Um, and the numbers have started coming back, I think, again, as the atmospheres and environments have come back, the games are more interesting to watch uh Lakers Warriors yeah that's gonna get you some people I'm curious to see how it looks with Denver and Phoenix and I know there are people who look at this and like well why are people so concerned with the ratings I'm less concerned than curious because I'm gonna watch it right and I think the league needs to be concerned because that's like there's a money issue that comes down to this I don't you I don't I don't look at ratings like NFL fans look at NBA ratings to be like, "Haha, nobody likes your sport." And I don't care about that sort of stuff. I don't do that with anybody else. It is an interesting metric for like how people consume the actual games and stuff like that. But no. Nah, these are big matchups. These are matchups that excite you as a fan and as a civilian. So, hey man, let's enjoy it. And we only really got like another week or so before we can start getting better sleep. Man. a lot of games dog i'm running low i'm running low we
1: know you can't be on top of all the news and information of the day no need for the social media feeds
0: we got you now if you haven't heard
2: all right this first story is from the economy hi i'm matt turner i'm the editor-in-chief of business insider now stop me if you've heard this before millennials got screwed by the economy it's a generation that took on huge loans to go to college in ever-increasing numbers before graduating shortly before or around the time of the great financial crisis. They put off having kids, gorged on avocado toast. They found it nearly impossible to get started on the housing ladder. There's even a series of self-help books titled Broke Millennials. It also happens to be my generation. I was born in 1984. But there's a compelling case for why millennials are more like boomers and Gen Xers than they might like to let on. First, when you look at generational wealth per capita, millennials are building wealth at the same rate that Gen X and boomers did. As contrary to common perception, as these kinds of charts often focus on generational shares of wealth, which leads to headlines about boomer generation having X times more wealth than millennials. But one should expect boomers to have a greater share of wealth. They've had decades to build their careers and amass assets. And while many millennials did get off to a rocky start in the jobs market, especially those at the upper end of the generation who graduated before and into the great financial crisis. I graduated in 2007, for example. There's evidence of a significant bounce back since then. By 2019, for example, income for the median millennial household was about $9,000 higher than that of the median Gen X household at the same age, and $10,000 more than the median boomer household. If you look at real estate, A recent report from Redfin showed that in 2022, 30% of 25-year-olds own their own home, higher than the rate for millennials, but the millennial rate was actually very slightly higher than it had been for Gen Xers. That leaves total wealth, including assets like real estate. And once again, there's a similar story here. Per data from the St. Louis Fed, the millennial Gen Z wealth is currently tracking with Gen X after initially getting off to a tough start. There are lots of nuances to all of this data, with differences across ages, professions, geography, gender and race. And there continue to be real challenges for many millennials. But there are convincing arguments for why, while the millennial generation did get off to a rough start, is now caught up to previous generations in terms of household income, home ownership, and wealth. And Where do you think all of the wealth that boomers have built up will eventually go? To so their kids, who are millennials.
0: Now, I will say that estate element of things is something that I had not considered, right? That at some point, they're going to wind up getting some of this, Gen X going to wind up, you know, getting some of that money in the pass down thing, which is this whole other discussion. What kind of jumped out to me in hearing that is just something for us to consider, which is we use millennial as a slang. uh, People use millennial like it was a slang term. Like it is a generational classification, like millennials is not just young people. You'll still hear people make references to millennials when they're making references to young people because they, they, they thought it really was just like something somebody came up in in a magazine, as opposed to being a delineation of a ger- as of a generation of people. Okay. Well, they're not that young anymore. Like they're millennials who are 40 years old now. So some of those things, and yeah, there was the loans and everything else. But at some point, some of those things are going to pass. Let me tell you what I imagine some of the millennials did too. I don't know if they hadn't thought about this on some of the student loans. Yo, get you a house, get you a car, and then just don't pay them loans. Like if you're willing to eat seven years of bad credit, and I'll be honest, for me, I haven't needed to use credit except for like other than getting a lease or something like that, and I don't know how long. But if you were in a position where you could get the mortgage and you already had the car, You can hold that car down for seven years. That's what a lot of people did during the financial crisis was just chuck the deuce on those houses, chuck the deuce on some of those cars, right? Just make the decision like, oh, okay, this is what we going to do. I'm surprised that more of them honestly haven't tried to do that. Because once you get out from under that weight, what are we really talking about? You know, but I did find it interesting that a lot of them have gotten into a better financial situation, which is cool to hear because now y'all can start paying some of these checks. Older people feel like they got to look out for you because the world shut down. Nope. 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 You got your half? All right. This next story comes hey, y'all. from entertainment. This is
3: Shadi Abu Saeed, and I'm a crime reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. We've been covering the sweeping Fulton County gang and racketeering case against award-winning rapper Young Thug and more than a dozen of his alleged associates. Prosecutors say the musician, his real name is Jeffrey Williams, is leader of the criminal street gang Young Slime Life. Authorities contend the group is responsible for much of Atlanta's crime. Williams' attorneys say their client is innocent, however, and that YSL is simply his record label. Court proceedings have been delayed repeatedly since jury selection began in January. But last week, one of the defense attorneys was arrested while going through a secondary security checkpoint set up outside the courtroom. The sheriff's office said Anastasios Menetis had prescription medication outside its original container. Now he faces five charges, including a felony. Everyone goes through security when they enter the downtown courthouse. But Fulton County Sheriff Patrick Labatt said he set up the secondary checkpoint in the hopes of weeding out contraband. Authorities say there have been at least three instances of defendants having drugs in court since proceedings began, and the sheriff is defending his enhanced security measures. Some attorneys have called the extra searches over the top, but the judge presiding over the case says he doesn't think they're unreasonable, especially after several instances of contraband being brought into his courtroom. Minettis was initially charged with simple battery on a police officer after allegedly throwing his cell phone at a deputy during his arrest. That charge was later dropped after several witnesses said Minettis was simply trying to pass his phone to a colleague while being detained. The attorney was in custody for about 10 hours last week before being released from jail on $5,000 bond. His charges include possession of pills not in their original container, obstruction, disrupting court proceedings, possession of dangerous drugs, and having a Schedule II controlled substance. The lawyer's attorney said the medication was prescribed to Minettis and is called the courthouse arrest bogus. Minettis' client, Miles Farley, was severed from the case after his lawyer's arrest. That means he'll be tried separately from the remaining 12 defendants. The case was expected to last six to nine months, but at this pace, lawyers say the high-profile trial will likely stretch into next year.
0: Park, have you been keeping up with this trial at all? I would say I've been keeping up with the trial, but I'm familiar with it. It has looked like satire. Like, I have not kept up with it every single day. I saw a video clip of what appeared to be somebody trying to bring some drugs to one of the defendants. I have seen a clip where the lawyer told the judge that something that happened during the trial was, and I quote, cap. honor, that's cap. That that really happened. Um, I believe that there was another moment where the judge required the lawyer to write a 17-page essay on professionalism because uh apparently the judge did not appreciate his get down and i found that to be incredibly patronizing and i felt like they were infantilizing this man but did you hear the other stuff i just said like i can't even be mad i don't it is so bad that i can't even assume that it was a white man that told him to write this to write the essay and if it was a white man why you make that white man think you do that like, that's there's so many levels that I have found myself saying and dealing with as it comes to this case. It's just so ridiculous. And this is my question, and I'm asking this for my Atlanta people. Whatever happened to that white man with the ponytail? Like, I know it's been a long time. I believe his name is Bruce Harvey. I'm not sure if that's his name. But look, every city got that one white man lawyer that you call in times like these, because he be making things happen. Houston got like 20 of them, right? But Rusty Harden, that dude that rep Deshaun Watson, rep Roger Clemens, you know what I mean? That's the man that you wind up calling. Let me make sure that white man with the ponytail is still with us. That was a very long time ago. I'm just telling you, normally, in times like these, unless Johnny Cochran is available, like uh, you 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 go get the industry leading white man, not the one in the commercials. No, 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 no. You need, you need, you need, you you need something better than the big law firm. You need more than the Texas Hammer, right? Celino, uh, no, no, no. You need something else. You need to go get that guy. And I don't know why it is the young thug didn't do that. Because I'm just telling you right now. I'm looking at all them charges, all them cases, everything they got on him. I understand that this is Atlanta, but if I was you, I'd have gone and got me a white man, just to be, just to be safe, just to be safe. I'm not saying black lawyers aren't as good as white lawyers. I'm saying that people look at them different. And they definitely would have looked at that white man different than whoever it is that you got in there calling stuff cap. On the legal. I would fire you right then and there. (laughs) What? Your Honor, I clearly have inadequate representation. And this is a violation of one of my amendments. Right. You got to you gotta get us out of here. Also saw something very, heard something very interesting. It was on NPR, I believe. And so I didn't know this, but the calls that people, like the visit logs in jail, like when people get on, you know, the phone on the opposite side of the wall, those are public record. Like you can go find them and listen to them. And one thing this NPR reporter said that was very interesting is that he has found that a great deal of the conversation when these guys get locked up is getting somebody to go delete their social media stuff. <laughs> what a world, man. What a world. i wondered if Ponytail was like, nah, too big a job for me, dog. Too big a job for me. Or well, whoever the new Ponytail is, I'm not sure. All right, this last story comes from Education.
4: Hi, this is Dana Goldstein from the New York Times. Last week, the College Board, the organization that runs the SAT, An advanced placement program, said it would revise its AP African American Studies class, its newest offering, less than three months after releasing it to a barrage of criticism. Now if you recall, back in February for Black History Month, the College Board released AP African American Studies, but scholars in the field said the class was inadequate, Under pressure from conservative politicians like Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, the College Board appeared to remove key concepts that are central to the way African-American studies is uh, practiced at the university level. Those concepts included Black Lives Matter, reparations, police misconduct and violence, And intersectionality, which is the study of how race, gender, sex, and class all intersect to shape our identity of the world. After initially denying that politics had influenced the contents of the class, it was revealed by subsequent reporting by myself, colleagues, and others that the College Board had engaged in a series of discussions with members of the DeSantis administration in which those um, bureaucrats and politicians had expressed misgivings about the contents of the class, such as the Black Panther Party. And then the College Board did go back to the drawing board and they did de-emphasize or remove some of the concepts that uh, the DeSantis administration objected to. It's unclear right now what the process exactly will be now for revising the class, but it does seem clear that the College Board feels somewhat chastened That despite the fact that they have not really formally apologized for this, that they do understand that if they put out a Black Studies class that doesn't conform to how Black Studies scholars see their own discipline, it will really do a disservice to students because the whole idea of the Advanced Placement Program is that the classes, while given in high school, are a true reflection of what a freshman year class would be in each discipline whether that's Japanese or Spanish or U.S. history or English literature or African-American studies. Um, Some scholars in the field of African-American studies, like Cheryl Harris, a legal scholar at UCLA, are asking for the College Board to bring in critics, um, critics of what has happened here to the process of revision in order to rebuild trust with experts. But the College Board has not yet committed to do that, and it will be interesting to see what process they take moving forward.
0: Yo, I got to say, as I hear, you know, the things that they were teaching this AP course, yo, that's a lot. Like for high school students, I'm not even sure. Like I looked at that and I'm like, how many teachers can you find that are actually in a position to like teach this material to a point that gets people ready to actually take an AP test? and get whatever it is from it like that was one of the things that jumped out when they said that there was an ap african-american studies i was like oh wow that's interesting and then i started looking at what they're talking about i'm like you're trying to cover all of that for high school students now to me that is the question that i had about the effectiveness of this is just is this a little bit too much for what you're you know for the time period and what you're asking for not the stuff that desantis um was going about with this but yeah, I, I, high school apparently has gotten gone a lot farther than it was going um, when I was there. I was just like, "Oh my goodness, this this like." And this is just something I want to throw out, and I do think this is something that's very important: is that there are a lot of things that we often ask, "Why don't they teach that in schools?" And I'm like, "Do you realize how much stuff there is to teach? Well, I don't we teach financial literacy in schools." Y'all can barely add as it is. Like like we, we got some other stuff that we got to get to before we can get to the next place. And so I was just kind of amazed by the idea that you could be like 11th or 12th grade and have gotten enough of a foundation to really adequately handle those topics that are being thrown out there. Like if they told me they didn't have this as an AP class, I wouldn't have a problem with it because I'm more concerned with whether or not you actually learn the stuff than whether you get an AP credit for it. Like, to me, that's the kind of class you need to do in college with people around and having a different level of discussion and a different level of teacher slash professor than you get um, when you're in school. Now, the people that are trying to swat it down, it seems to be very clear to me that their reasons are not nearly the same as the stuff that I'm talking about, right? They just kind of being haters um, when, it, you know, when it comes down to it. But, I mean, no, I am not sure that teaching that course in high schools Is the best idea because I'm not sure it serves the students in the best way.
5: We know you can't be on top of all the news and information of the day.
1: No need for the social media feeds. We got you. Now, if you
0: haven't heard.
1: All right, the voicemail topic for this week is tell us a time the game was cheating.
0: Yep, never gets old. And if it does, too bad. I couldn't think of nothing else. (laughs) All right, this first one's from Jeremy.
6: Hey, my name is Jeremy. I'm calling about the time where the game cheated. So I'm playing against my brother. Randall. Uh, it's like the 2013 NCAA college football. He had LSU. It's the year where they had the honey badger. So that was his thing. He was like, the honey badger. So um, he found out that if you do a hard count, it make the um, make the defensive line jump off He did that. No lie, Bo. For like from August when the game came out, all the December. He beat me every weekend. That's all he did down the field. Hard count, hard count. And if I didn't jump, He'll throw a slant, unstoppable. I tried everything. I put the discipline down to where my linemen shouldn't jump, they still jump. I stand my linemen up, they still jump sides. But th- what he didn't realize was the game is an update every week. With like if the players did something good, they are put it into the game. So this year, that Justin Blackman was on Oklahoma State. I went ahead and did some research Got Justin Blackman gave me noise. We played, we're going back and forth. And he's still doing his hard counting all the way through. About 19 seconds left. I get the ball to the 50-yard line. You already know he gets the pre pin defense. Backs everybody up to the end zone. Justin Blackman takes off. I throw a bomb, 50-yard search at the back of the end zone. Caught it on four people. He goes crazy. Now, before he did this, you know, he's a capper, He was doing his chemo. He just knew the game was over. And then after I catch the ball, he just started trying and walked out the room. He hasn't played me since then, and it's going on about twelve years. And yeah, until to the day, I post it on Facebook, and Facebook they remind him of it every year. That's my time. Thank you.
0: <laughs> yeah, I just can't imagine how bad I'd be if you just jumping me offside over and over again, just jumping me offside. I'd be furious. Coward move. Definitely a coward move. (laughs) This is what you got next. All right. This next one's from
1: Stefan from Seattle.
7: Hey, Bo. This is Stefan from Seattle. Uh, This one time, I was in a Madden franchise league, online franchise league, that my boy JT set up. And so I was the Chicago Bears, because I'm from Chicago. This is Madden, like Madden 13. So this one, the Bears had Jay Cutler and Brandon Marshall. And so the regular season's going good. I go 14-2, basically lost the two games in some simulated games. Going through the playoffs, you know, I'm cutting up everybody, just doing the thing, Brandon Marshalls, beasting folks, all sorts of stuff. Get to the Super Bowl, I'm playing my boy, JT. He's the Broncos. I'm like, man, JT's good. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to focus. Like, I've been all year on Brandon Marshall. So. Got a couple unfortunate fumbles. JT takes a 10-3 lead. It's the second quarter. I'm like, alright, time to buckle down. And I'm like, I'm gonna put Brandon Marshall at tight end to create a nice little mismatch against a linebacker. It's like second and eight. I get the mismatch. Brandon's gonna be running a crosser. He's almost kinda settled in, the, in between the hashes. JT's defense is playing in the zone. So Brandon runs a route. He goes out about seven yards, cuts across to the middle, and the linebacker is in zone, probably about two yards behind him. I see him. I hit the button and throw to Brandon Marshall. Dog, I kid you not, the ball was going to hit him straight between the numbers and then teleport it behind him, and it was intercepted. I almost threw the controller through the wall when I saw that happen. JT called me up. He had to pause the game, called me up, and he said, Did you see this what happened? I said, Man, I can't even I can't even with this game right now. Ended up losing the Super Bowl something like twenty seven to fourteen. But I I just lost interest after that. And uh I just couldn't I couldn't even believe that the game just did me dirty like that. Brady Marshall got like ninety nine hands, too, man. How how the ball I don't even know how the ball. I don't even know how the ball went through there, man. And so uh at the time that the uh the game cheated, man. Anyway, man, love the show. This is my first time in a long time. And uh keep up the good work. Thanks.
0: Peace. Yo. <laughs> What I love about these always is the seriousness and the level of detail, and like the real pain that you hear. And I had never considered the element of the fact that you guys are playing this online, so the dude's not there with you when the game is cheating. Like I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of these always as somebody witnessing you, but he's just like he got 99 hands too. Like all our logic comes into play as to why this could happen.
1: Worst feeling in the world is getting cheated by madness. All right, this last one's from Jermaine from South Carolina.
5: Hey, what's going on, Bo? This is Jermaine from South Carolina, and um, I had retired from basketball games. I was done for a good stretch, same way you kind of probably were with Madden. You put enough time into it. you playing every game of a season, barely simulating, stuff like that. It takes a lot of time. So I hadn't touched a basketball game steady since, like, live 2005. It really was that long. And then they told me that Jordan was actually going to be in 2K11. And I said, you know what, it's time to go ahead and take my talents to this Xbox. And I got on the Xbox and I turned the game on and it was all this cinematic stuff and it was showing highlights and all kinds of stuff. And then it instantly puts you in a game. So I'm like, oh man, they pulled out all the stuff, right? So I'm playing with like the 91 Bulls or something like that. One, I think it's their first championship run, something like that. No, 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 no. it's a playoff game where they're playing against the, the Celtics. And I shoot a couple shots, and I'm making them. I'm like, oh, I guess the dynamics of this game have changed. Then I realized it clicked to me. I never selected what the difficulty was. It's always straight in the game. didn't give you an option. I'm like, they must have put this on rookie. Every shot was Jordan. Every single shot. I threw up. I, I'm pretty sure by the time we were starting the fourth quarter, I had put up like 80 with Jordan. Like, it was something stupid like that. I'm still behind by one point. It doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. It comes down to the last shot. I get fouled. Who's shooting the ball? The one time I'm not shooting it with Jordan. Cartwright. Cartwright goes to the line. I've never seen Cartwright shoot a free throw. I don't remember. I was young back then, but I don't. there's no recollection of him shooting a free throw. But I got to assume his percentage has to be extremely low. I was down by one. He missed both of them, Both. He missed both of them. The game ended we lost. I changed history. The game ended. They put the stats up, and I wasn't paying attention to the other team. Larry Bird had 94 points, Bo. That's what 2K welcomed me back to, and I played for a couple more years, and then I let go of it. I got off that narcotic because it's unacceptable, Bo. The game was cheating. Appreciate you guys.
0: All right. I just want to let you know something right fast. Bill Cartwright, the ugliest form of free throw in the history of the NBA, was a career 77% free throw shooter. Look, 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 look. They wouldn't let him put up them broken ass free throws if they wasn't going in. Like somebody would have rebuilt that from the ground up. Otherwise, I don't know how he wound up doing that, how that became his game. Uh, Bill Cartwright was a better player than you remember. I'm just telling you that right now. But yeah, nah. Larry Bird put up 90 points on you. You said you stopped playing after another couple of years. I guess you felt like you had to get your money's worth after you paid for it that time, but it'd have been a wrap for me, period. Also, best Bill Cartwright story ever. It's Michael Jordan in practice. They 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 weren't homies. And Jordan told people, stop passing Cartwright the ball. And Cartwright told him that if he ever did that, he'd never play basketball again. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Thanks so much for joining us here on the right time. We do this 3 times a week. Parker Owens handling everything behind the scenes. Thank you, sir. Also thank you to our if you haven't heard contributors. Thank you to Matthew Turner of Insider. Check out his story on millennials being more financially successful than previously thought at insider.com. Thanks to Shadi Abu Said of the Atlanta Journal Constitution. Check out his story on the young thug trial at AJC And also, thank you to Dana Goldstein of the New York Times. Check out her story on the AP African-American history changes in the curriculum. Remember, follow The Right Time. Rate us, review us, give us five stars. You only give us four stars. I'll be inclined to think you are a hater. We'll talk to you guys in a couple of days. Take it easy.
1: Thanks for checking out The Right Time with Bomani Jones Podcast.
4: You can listen or follow on the ESPN app or wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: The Right Time
4: with Bomani Jones.